Welcome to The Sustainable Life. I'm here with Katie Redford again. Katie, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you, Josh? I'm very good and full of anticipation. The goal last time was we were going to quick cover your past life and then talk about uh, the pipeline you had just come back from in Memphis and, and your current work. But the older stuff was so fascinating and so full that we did spend the whole time on that. And now hopefully we'll get to the new stuff. Although I will add that I'd read things about you before talking to you, but now I watched your TEDx talk, which I recommend to everybody. Uh, I watched Total Denial, this documentary. It's now maybe 10 years old? Mm, 15. 15 years old. But I mean, a lot of what you talked about in words there is visual and coming from the people themselves and brutal, but fascinating. And then I saw a talk with you and Kosawa, if I've said it right, with Bioneers. And this is just, fin- I mean, if you liked what she said the first time, please watch these videos and, and more. We could go on about those and, and I hope we get to, but let's talk about Memphis and the Equation Campaign and what you're doing now. Sure thing. How did you leave that to do this? I mean, I, I'm sure you haven't totally left that. What got you started in something new? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I spent my career at Earthrights really fighting injustice and looking at the, there's so much injustice in the world, but we were looking at the real interconnection between human rights abuses and environmental degradation and extractive industries. And I think there's no greater threat to human rights right now globally than the injustice of climate change. So the Equation Campaign is a new initiative that I'm running that is all about supporting movements on the ground where fossil fuels are, fossil fuel industries are operating or trying to operate and expand their operations, supporting movements on the ground to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Because we cannot afford to even burn what we already have, the climate budget that we have, the time that we have to wind down our use and production of fossil fuels is dwindling. The UN and the IPCC has made that very clear that we have even less time than we thought. And if anyone has gone outside in the past few years or watched the news, you know, the forest fires, the floods, the hurricanes, the droughts the heat waves, you know, the UN has has called it a code red for humanity and nobody is safe. So the Equation Campaign is um, my opportunity to spend all of my time fighting the fossil fuel industry on this new front, which is to try to actually not only hold them accountable for their past harms, which is what I was doing as a lawyer at Earthrights, but also prevent the worst of the worst future harms that climate change is already bringing to every person on the planet. But of course, some experience it worse than others. What you're saying is so few people reach the point of we have to leave the oil in the ground. It's so tempting. I mean, I, someone, who was I talking to? And we were talking about airplanes and how I had on, on the podcast a, a chief engineer from an, an electric plane company. And he knows the science better than anyone, of aerodynamics and of aeronautics and of batteries and of alternative fuels. And we are never going to fly across an ocean. You know, we, we're doing with the fossil fuels now, but what we think we can do, people are, it's so tempting, so tempting to think, well, the Wright brothers couldn't have imagined a 747. Of course we'll get there. And we're, we're not. 
And when people look at me like, oh, you don't fly is so extreme. It's the future. And people don't get, oh, and I was talking to someone. Yeah. What I was talking to someone about was they were like, they want to work on airplanes. I was like, if you want to work on anything, work on small electric planes without pilots that can bring what, what they're working on at this company where the, this guy works is uh, small planes that can take things. You know, sometimes the land is impassable. There's been a flood or you're going over a mountain range and you can't get trains there and you can take 300 pounds worth of stuff a few hundred miles. It's still extractive. It's still like, if you want to work on something, that's not like, oh, getting us part of the way there. It feels like, oh, well, I'll do something. Keeping the oil in the ground, everyone reaches there. There's no other where, other place to reach. And living without fossil fuels is not a horror show. It's glorious. It's really a great way to live. It's not like, oh, I'm not going to see my mama on the other coast. You're not going to live apart from your family in the first place. Well, I mean, you're totally right. And, and I would just maybe edit slightly one thing you said, which is very few people reach that conclusion that we have to live without fossil fuels. Actually, the world's leading scientists have all reached that conclusion. That's what the science demands. We absolutely just simply, there's no way around continuing to burn fossil fuels and a habitable planet. planet. So it's one or the other, either there's a planet that is hospitable to humanity or we stop burning fossil fuels. And that doesn't mean we have to do it right now, today, like turn off the lights, stop driving your car tomorrow. But every day we delay means that when we ultimately must wind it down, it's going to be that much harder. And so that the scientists say we have you know now less than 10 years to cut our emissions in half by 50%. And at the Equation Campaign, our entire focus is stopping that expansion and going to the, what we call the supply side of the equation, which is keeping those supplies in the ground and starting that managed transition because we've already dug ourselves into a huge hole here. I mean, the, the climate crisis is upon us. We are in a hole. Why would we keep digging that hole even deeper by expanding the supplies of fossil fuels, building new pipelines, extracting new resources, building new LNG terminals and, and using them more. No, we need to start that transition in a managed, just way. And it doesn't mean, as you said, that we're all going to go back to living in caves huddled around a candle, you know. No, look at, look at what humanity has accomplished so far. We have the technology to do this. We have the technology to move away from fossil fuels. We have the science. We have the resources. We have the money. Just think about if we weren't subsidizing fossil fuels and we were subsidizing renewables and and like you're saying other ways of living and doing and being. It's we have everything we need to make this transition. The one thing that we don't have as a community is the power to make it so because these industries and the banks and insurers that are supporting them and making money off of our, you know, selling off our future are standing in the way. And so that's the second part of what we do at the Equation Campaign is we invest in the power because it is about power. It's about, you know, reducing the power of the industries to block the solutions that we know we need and that, and that we could get to if they weren't standing in the way. And one way of doing that also is building, enhancing, unleashing the power of the communities who have the most to gain and lose from winning winning this fight. Because certainly people who are on the front lines of fossil fuel expansion 
are hit first and worst by the impacts of fossil fuels. And that's, you know, what I was talking about last time we talked, right? People who lived on this pipeline route in Burma, and that looked like slave labor, rape, torture, and killing and mass forced relocation in the United States, where, where I'm focusing my work now and where the vast majority of planned expansion of the oil and gas industry worldwide is in the United States. So we are the problem here, not just in terms of being the biggest consumers, but also the biggest producers of, of new fossil fuels. What that looks like for communities from, you know, Minnesota, where tribes right now are finding the Line 3 pipeline, from Memphis, where Communities 1 recently stopped the Bihalia pipeline, where I was last weekend in North Carolina, communities fighting the Mountain Valley pipeline, all across the country. If you live where the oil and gas industry wants to work and build and site their facilities, what that means for you is increased air pollution, poisoned water, increased asthma for your family, cancer clusters, and a decimation of your way of life. And if you're indigenous or, you know, living on sacred lands for whatever reason, also your your culture and spiritual and religion are impacted. So across this country, people who have to live where the oil industry is or is trying to go suffer more than people like, you know, I'm assuming you and me who are not living on the front lines, but we're all living on the front lines of the impacts of the climate crisis. None of us are safe. We saw that this past summer with the incredible heat waves in the Pacific Northwest in Canada, the deadly floods, you know, in Germany. We're used to seeing these kinds of things in Bangladesh and Indonesia. And somehow that has been acceptable so far, which is just atrocious to think that any human being could look at that and find it acceptable. But people are now waking up because, you know, climate justice and and racial justice are very linked. And it's like, oh, if it's happening to people who don't look like me, then I don't have to worry about it. Well, now, like I said, we're all on the front lines. Some people hear about, talk about how things are going and they're like, oh, why be so doomy about it? And I'll take, because I just watched Total Denial, which is a documentary about the Burmese pipeline. And I'm going to take that and combine it with what you said when you said, well, maybe you and I aren't suffering. To disconnect from people who it is not like, oh, there's a couple of bad apples out there. There once was a time when you could just scoop oil off the ground. You know, the Liberia tar pits, like uh, dinosaurs would like walk under this oil pit and they'd sink into it. It was literally just pools of it on the ground. You could just scoop it up. And now... It's in the most remote places. And what we have to do to the environment to go through miles of ocean, then through miles of of dirt, and then build these pipelines across areas. And when you say indigenous cultures, it kills me. I hope that this defense works, but it kills me that that's our last line of defense is the actual people who are going to be hit by that that particular pipeline. But imagine that pipeline is going like through Notre Dame Cathedral. That, I think people would talk about that, you know, Catholics and Absolutely. And that's, that's exactly even non-Catholics, sorry, (laughs) what these companies do and why environmental race, the environmental racism of the fossil fuel industry, and frankly, any polluting and harmful industry are cited in places where these companies think there will be the least opposition, have the least political power, have the least ability in their mind 
to, to stop them. And what these, what these are referred to, and this is a terrible term, it's not my term, but it's a term that's out there, is sacrifice zones. That we will sacrifice certain communities, certain people, certain areas, so that the rest of us can have, you know, our air condition going 24-7 and fly across the country anytime we want to and, you know, continue to drill, burn, and, you know, warm the planet. And so to think that anyone could be sacrificed is, is terrible, but these sacrifice zones are overwhelmingly in Black, Indigenous, people of color, and poor rural communities because they have the least political access and what the companies think, the least ability to stop them. In Memphis, where the Bihalia pipeline was planned to go through 99% Black communities. It had a straight, easy shot right through, you know, white and non-white, but some white communities in Memphis. And instead, the pipeline route was basically looked like a zigzag jigsaw puzzle piece all around the city. So I don't know, I got out this map and it's almost due east, the like the start to the end. And it first goes southwest and it goes yeah. south and west for a bit. And it's, it really is like why <laughs> the complication of all these zigzags must make, make it a big engineering mess. So yeah, I'll, I'll put a link to that too. Well, right. So they're, they're less worried about the engineering mess than the political mess and the, and the resistance that they'll get from people with privilege and power who don't want it in their backyard and they don't want to breathe dirty air and have asthma and have poisoned water and have the noise pollution and the bad smell and everything that comes with the fossil fuel industry. So let some other people have, have that. And in this case, let the black people deal with that. And the company actually said, and this was, you know, it's one of its greatest mistakes. The company actually said out loud when asked about the strange routing of this pipeline, they said, we routed it through the path of least resistance. And this is an incredible moment where, first of all, the company told the truth. They told the truth. They, they said, yep, the reason we chose that route was, is because it's the path of least resistance. And now on the other hand, the communities were like, oh, you want to see the path of re- least resistance? We're going to show you some resistance, but it's not going to be the least resistance. And they and resist, they did. And 10 and a half months later, that pipeline has been canceled and the company withdrew their plans because these communities who were presumed to be folks who were just going to roll over or were not going to know or were not going to fight or we're not going to know how to access. Or if they did fight, could be steamrolled. Right. And time and again, what holds these companies accountable, what brings them down, what stops these projects are the folks on the ground who are fighting for what they love, for fighting for their community, for their children, for the health and safety of their family members, for their lands, for their ancestors, and are motivated by the rage and the pain that comes with being treated like a sacrifice zone and and being threatened with these things. It's what one what stopped the Keystone XL pipeline. It's what stopped the Atlantic Coast pipeline. It's what stopped the Bihalia pipeline. Is giving the Enbridge 
uh, line three pipeline up in Minnesota right now, a huge run for their money because, you know, people are going to protect what they love and they're going to do what they, what they need to do. And it's unfair for any of us, like you said, to leave it until it gets to that point, because we should all be fighting injustice wherever it's happening, not just when it's happening to us. If someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I just want the energy. I don't want that to happen. Like reform them, but those days are gone. The only way to get the oil now is through this destruction. If we could do it, otherwise we would. And if you think, but I don't want that, just get it some other way. That We've been saying that for several generations. And if we think, if, if you're thinking, well, there's clean energy right around the corner. That, I got other guests who will dispute that. But let's just imagine that's the case. If you really believe that, the fastest, most effective way to get that is to stop using the fossil fuels. Right. And to stop, I mean, we have enough for you and me and the people listening to keep using for the next 10 years. We don't have to take another single drop out of the earth that it's, or expand the operation that locks in 30 more years from today of, of injustice, abuse, and warming gases going into our atmosphere. We have enough to, to manage a decline that slowly winds down while we are building up our other, you know, alternative energies. And so why in the world would the Biden administration or anyone put one more of one more penny of our taxpayers' dollars into subsidizing this industry for one more day? There's $25 billion at least just in subsidies to the oil and gas industry and the current infrastructure bill. Why would we do that? That's like saying, you know, and then they're saying like, oh, but we're also investing in technology to clean up the mess later. That's like, that's like saying we're going to subsidize cigarettes while we try to find a cure for cancer. It's insane. And why would any of your listeners want a dime of their taxpayers' money to go to that insanity? And so, you know, what the industry wants you to do is to, is to feel guilty and to blame yourself and to, and to say, well, I drive, I get on planes, I use this product, so it's my fault. That is exactly what they want you to think. And of course, everyone is responsible and should, should take the steps that they can to minimize their, their footprint, but it doesn't matter what all of us do. If they keep taking, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of barrels of this stuff out of the earth every day and put it into the market and continue to fuel the addiction. And so until every one of your listeners, in addition to bringing their reusable bags and riding their bikes and walking gently on the earth are also raising their voices with their elected officials and exercising their political power to say to our leaders, not one more dime of my tax money should subsidize this addictive cancer that you have, you know, been spewing into our society for the past however many years, then we're not going to get anywhere. So that's the action that I think individuals should be taking. And what we're doing at the Equation Campaign is supporting the work of the folks on the front lines who are stopping it at its source. And I will also say that in addition to those examples that I just gave, there are many around the world of frontline communities stopping these industries. It's the number one thing. You don't have to believe me. If you look at, um, for example, Moody's 
and other industry analysts surveyed the oil and gas industry and said, what, what are the things that are getting in the way of your business operations? The two things that they listed as the top two things that threaten their operations are the opposition from local movements and regulation. And those are two things. Regulation comes from people demanding it. And opposition from local movements, it's why the industry refers to the Keystone Effect, which is local ranchers, farmers, and tribes joining together to fight a common enemy, in this case, the pipeline, or what they refer to as getting standing rocked, which again is mass mobilization on the ground, but then through all sectors of society to oppose a pipeline. And that is what they're afraid of. And if that's what they're afraid of, then that's what we at the Equation Campaign need to support. How many other groups are like the Equation Campaign? Because I feel like there's a lot that are, there's a lot of people doing things that aren't focused on keeping the oil in the ground. And there's so many who are like, we're going to use plastic from the ocean to make jewelry. And I'm not going to stop them, but I feel like they haven't reached this. Are there a lot of equation campaigns? No, there, there are happily more and more emerging because of, you know, again, people are waking up to the science and the reality that we can't avoid this, but we, we actually, the two founders of the Equation Campaign are two members of the Rockefeller family who are fast-tracking their philanthropy and using their resources to actually end the industry that, of course, made them who they are in the first place. And when we started the Equation Campaign, our name indicates that we're supporting and funding and working on what we consider to be the missing pieces of the equation. And one of those, as you indicate, is focusing on the supply side of the solution, trying to stop the supplies at their source. When we started last year, I think less than 20% of philanthropic dollars in the climate space went to supply side solutions to the climate crisis. And that means that that's, you know, that's what most nonprofits are working on is what they get funded to do. So the demand side is also important. We, of course, need to reduce demand and supply and demand are linked, but the industry does not. It is a complete myth to think that the industry responds to demand. No, they create demands. They create the demand. They tell you you need it. COVID was an incredible um, example of that where all of a sudden it was like, oh, we need to be wrapping every single thing in plastic when there was zero scientific evidence for that. I mean, there's now, you know, evidence that has come out. Investigative journalists have exposed that the industry knew that there was zero science to that, but they, they saw it as like their life, the life buoy to their sinking ship. Like, oh, we got to wind down fossil fuels because people are waking up to the climate crisis, but are what's going to save us is plastics. So all that to say that the industry creates demand, it does not respond to it. And the vast majority of philanthropy and therefore, you know, nonprofit organizations who work on climate are not focusing on the supply side of the equation. And the founders of the equation campaign are very clear that that is our focus, that we need to get rid of this industry that their their ancestors started. And they're putting their money where their mouth is, and they're hoping that by doing so, that others will be inspired to join with them. I'm curious how, you know, my goal is with the sustainable life, which was originally leadership in the environment. 
is to work with, how do I put it? The images, the beliefs, the stories that people have. It's less tangible, but you know, to anyone who thinks we will have a future that's like Star Trek, where you know, we just have these dilithium crystals and they just do their thing. And meanwhile, we, everything's taken care of. And of course, we'll have to break a few eggs to get there, but we have to just keep pressing forward. And if you don't keep pressing forward, you won't get there. Or other people who feel like this is about freedom. And if you encroach on my freedom. So I want to work with leaders of communities and help. And I think community influences people's perspectives more than, often more than facts and figures. And how does that sound from your perspective? To me, it was something that was missing and something that I felt that as long as people feel like, oh, this is something that, you know, probably by 2075, 2100, that we should really buckle down on. But for now, it's okay because, you know, it's not so bad for me. It's probably not that that bad. These stories, how many people out there feel like, we've all done this calculation. We read, this terrible thing's going to happen by this date. And we calculate, how old am I going to be on that date? Oh, I'll probably be almost dead. Now I don't have to worry about it. This is like the craziest thing. I hope I die soon enough. And uh, my kids will figure it out. Like this, we've all done this calculation. And and like, oh, I guess the worst of it won't hit me. So I'll just keep business as usual. That's what I'm working on. I'm curious how that sounds from the equation first perspective. Absolutely. Well, first of all, there's there's two pieces. You have to stop the supply, right? We've got to, you know, stop digging ourselves deeper into this hole, as, as I said. And then the second part is what, it, what are the new ways of, of living, being, and, you know, enjoying life? So the other side of <laughs> the equation, I guess, or, or the same side, which is the folks on the ground where oil and gas, where these industries are operating, have already been living very differently than the people who are consuming the vast consumers of oil and gas. So for example, indigenous communities do live much more of a sustainable life. It is not a a life that is, that is a lifestyle that is based on consumerism, um, throwing things away on fast, fast, fast. It is a a life that is based in reverence for nature and balance. And I think it's really important for us to remember, I mean, (laughs) this, um, capitalist, you know, consumer-based lifestyle that like the more money I have, the more things I'll have, the more I will enjoy my leisure time. I just have to work, you know, 24-7 for 49 weeks a year so that my three weeks vacation, I can I can pay a lot of money to go be in nature. I can pay a lot of money to go to a yoga retreat or a silent meditation retreat or to go hiking and see wildlife. Imagine if that was just our way of life. You would have joy and leisure and beauty for the majority of the time, not the minority of the time. So there are people who have been living the sustainable life for who are living it now, who have, who that's part of their traditions. It's part of their spiritual and and cultural identities. And it turns out that many of these communities are the very same that the industry is, you know, running bulldozers and pipelines through. And so while you invest in the power and this, we believe very strongly at the equation campaign, that it's like a win-win if you're investing in their power and their resistance 
to the fossil fuels in their backyard, you're also investing in the leadership of the people who are going to show us the way for the future that we actually want and that we deserve, which is a different way of being. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Yeah, a lot of people are going to hear this and think, oh, but life is nasty, brutus, and short. There's the Stone Age, and it was terrible. Nasty, brutus, and short described post-agriculture. You're using the term indigenous, non-indigenous, but actually their marks of health, longevity, abundance, stability was higher than ours up until very, very recently, but ours is actually now decreasing. Yeah. Our lives, we're living shorter lives. Yeah. Lower quality of life than before. And that's going to, we're just downturning. I mean, it's going to, if we don't dramatically change fast, it's going to really downturn. Whereas people think, oh, people died at like age 30 was old. That was post-agriculture, pre-antibiotics and, and certain, certain things. But actually yeah. they lived to 60 or 70. And if there was childbirth issues or very young age issues, which we can, we, we don't have to throw the science away that we've gotten since then. No, no. Science, science is good. Knowledge yeah. is good. It's, it's not to say we, that's what I'm saying. We don't have to go back to the stone ages. We, we take what, what works and we reject what doesn't. And, you know, in addition to lifespans going down, look at what's going up, particularly in America, suicide, drug overdose, addiction, depression, <laughs> the, the industry for therapists and psychologists is definitely skyrocketing, which, which is probably a good thing. I think everyone, you know, that's, that, that is a great thing, but it's not like this capitalist industrial, you know, just free for all has made our lives, which are maybe on average longer, any happier to the contrary. Yeah. When I go around picking up litter, you know, I, I try to get in the mindset of what, what causes it. You know, there's this idea of a feeling of like, well, I have this litter. I don't want to deal with it. Tomorrow isn't going to be any better than today. I might as well just get rid of it. It's a hopelessness. It's clear to see in people who are obviously addicted to something like heroin. They, they don't care about the future. It's just right now. And anyone who's not on heroin, the person on heroin might say, I can't stop. But anyone who's off of it knows you can. There's a way to get off of it. And yeah, it's not easy. It's hard. If everyone, it, this hopelessness is pandemic to our world. And if you're thinking, well, it's not, I live in a place that's not so polluted as some inner city. First, the world is very polluted. I mean, we've seen the air in Beijing and so forth. And we can't keep that air like stuck there. And, and a lot of that's from the factories that would move from here to there. So we're still paying for it. We're still producing it. But if you're thinking, if you're acting to stop it, you have hope. But if you're thinking there's nothing I can do, it's just the litter is going to keep growing. The pollution is going to keep going. That's hopelessness. That's, that's really the way out of it is to act. And this is really deep. 
I mean, we don't, we're not trying to make a better future. I mean, some people are working on some things, but in this big area, which is front page news virtually daily now, certainly multiple times per week, people just throw up their hands and say, well, there's nothing I can do. At least the worst of it is going to be after I die. This is profound. I mean, to me, it's as great as, it's not as acute as, well, it's pretty profound. I mean, when someone's dying from, you know, the, the runoff in their food, from their land being destroyed and things like that, that's pretty acute. I guess I can't compete with that. But the hopelessness of society, of just the, the addiction is saying more and more and more people have nothing better than to just get physical pleasure in the moment. And that's no indigenous culture lived that way. And they endured for, I mean, tens of thousands of years commonly hundreds of thousands of years in many cases. And, and look what they had to overcome to endure. I mean, genocide and disease and one thing after another, removal and then, then nuclear in their lands and fossil fuels in their lands and mining and, 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 and the resiliency is profound and it's inspiring. They look at our culture and they, they see that they could switch if they want. And they're not idiots. Right. <laughs> I mean, if they get forced into it, if you know, the farms encroach more and more and more into their lands, and then, then they don't have enough space to live the way that they did. And now they kind of have to switch over. I guess now in the news, there's a lot of people from this culture would go into their culture and say, we have to teach them our ways and, and wipe out their ways. And I wanted to, I wonder if there's enough time. I'm going to see if I can do the technique I was talking about. Cool. When you think about the environment, what motivates you? Not what are your goals? Not what are you trying to get done? What's inside you that when you think of this is what, this is what I'm working for, this is worth saving? Oh my gosh, there's so many things. I mean, you know, for me, what motivates me is anger at injustice most of the time. Like that's, it's just not fair and it doesn't have to be that way. But like looking around. Your personal experience. I mean... I'll tell you something recently. Recently, I was walking in nature up in Maine in silence in a beautiful forest. And I kind of stopped and was watching the trees and listening to them. And and out of what felt like nowhere, just swooped right across me a bald eagle that was, you know, probably 20 yards max away from, from my line of vision. And I've seen bald eagles before and they are incredible. And I've seen them through my binoculars, but never that close with the blind eye. And it was like an incredibly powerful experience. It, it was, you know, it, there's so many things like that. When I think about the fact that at this point, I think the glaciers are doomed and we just will not have any more polar bears on this, on this planet anymore. I just want to, to cry and scream and rage. Those are the things that motivate me. And of course, my children and all the world's children, because for those people that say, well, hopefully I'll be dead, other people won't be dead. And you know some of those people. I want to keep to your personal experience. Yeah, that motivates me. So you talk about that bald eagle. I was last summer kayaking with my stepfather and a bald eagle flew like right over his head. And I was the majesty it was just operating on a different time scale, the way that it would just barely move. And just, did you grow up with experiences like that? I mean, definitely grew up outside a lot. I was, you know, that tree climbing, <laughs> walking in the river, getting dirty, all that stuff. Yeah. 
you mind if I ask where it was? I mean, it was in New England. I was like in, you know, suburban Massachusetts. So, but you can have that experience anywhere. I mean, catching tadpoles, you know, chasing frogs, looking at the, you know, the birds, right? It, it doesn't matter. There's nature all around us and connecting with it is a really powerful experience wherever you are. Yeah. You reminded me of when I was in grade school, we had a stream behind the school and we'd catch newts and... and It's magical. It's magical. And, and little kids, you know, love that stuff. So that's what we need to get back to. I'm thinking not just little kids. I think adults like that too. Totally. Yeah, I do too. Yep. Based on these feelings that you had, this magic, this childlike experience, if I'm getting it right, mm-hmm. I invite you at your option to think of something to do to act on those feelings. And to clarify, this is not, I'm not asking you what, I'm not saying what's the most important thing you can do for the environment. This is not about fixing the world at all. It may have that effect. And, but something new that you're not already doing, something that you do with your own hands, very tempting to say, oh, I'll get my kids to do X or I'll get this other group to do Y. By all means, do those things, but this is something you do with your own hands where after you do it, you say, I did something, I had some physical effect on the world that was beneficial by your standards. Mm-hmm. And most people at this stage are like, I'm not exactly sure what I would say, what I would do. And they start thinking, about, here's what I'm already doing. And it takes a little bit of back and forth. Usually, some people are just, oh, I know what to do. I've been meaning to do X for a while, but care to take up the the, the uh, invitation? Yeah, I have two things, but they're kind of connected. One is to, and I think we should all do this, and I certainly need to do it more. Commit to spending more of that silent time in nature, because I think wherever you are and whenever you do that, from that comes a reverence that that drives you to act further and to do the next thing, and so. You know, I've, I've wanted to sort of like do solo time in nature at least once a week for three hours. And nature could just be my backyard sitting there, like looking at the trees and how the leaves, you know, interact with each other. And what are they, what, what are the sounds coming up? I mean, that's what I mean. And that's been something I've wanted to do, but I haven't done it. So that would be the first thing. And then I think within that, it, when it makes sense and when it is, there's a huge problem in where I live in Maryland of invasive species and, and vines. And there's this one guy who like just makes it, he's, I think he's retired, just walks around all day long with, you know, heavy clippers and just like one tree at a time cuts off all of the vines and, and pulls them off. And it's like literally killing entire species of, of trees. So that would be something that I would add to my nature walks maybe. But I also think it's important to just do nature for nature without a task as well. That's a task in itself. So that's why it's sort of two things, but maybe connected. Would you be game to uh, set a time that you'd, I heard once a week for three hours, would you be game to commit to that and then share how it went after I don't, whatever the right period of time is that for you to if I ask how did it go for you to say, you've done it enough that you can say, you know, you give a meaningful answer. Yeah. Yeah. Can I then change it to once a week for two hours? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh... Or, or it would be once every other week for three hours. What do you think? Whatever resonates with you more. I, what I know okay. is that, that this is not about big or small. Yeah. It's about extrinsic versus intrinsic. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to get to your personal experience because it'll be, I know that, whether it's big or small, when people do this, like I sense that you anticipate that you'll like this experience. Yeah. I bet that you will like it more than you think for reasons yeah. you can't predict. So I know that whether you do big or small at the beginning, whether you do one or both at the beginning, you'll eventually go more and more and more. And I predict also that 
your professional life will benefit in ways yep. beyond what you expect. A hundred percent. And I will tell you that the, the idea for this, this is not my original idea. This is actually a practice in the equation campaign that you know, we have a staff of three and then two founders from the Rockefeller family. And it was actually one of, it was Rebecca Rockefeller Lambert, who actually has required this as a practice for our whole team once every quarter. She does it all the time and she encourages us to do it all the time, but it's like actually part of our job to do this time in nature. And then we spend time together reflecting on it. So, so I was actually doing that when I had that Eagle experience that I was telling you about. And that made me be like, I've got to do this more. Let me do every other week for three hours. That, that sounds realistic and doable and I'll commit to it. Okay. And then how long do you think it'll take? How many weeks before, uh, if I ask how it went, you've, had enough to go on to, to answer on? I don't know. Maybe if, if it was eight weeks, that would be four times. Okay. Are you game for a third conversation, I guess, in, in yeah, eight weeks? Totally. So let's schedule it after we hang up or okay. after we stop recording. And um, well, let's pick up here next time because I know you have to go to your next thing. I do. Uh, anything to wrap up with before closing? I think two things, which, which is sort of things that I've already said and, and, you know, the the despair and the shame and guilt and blaming yourself, like I'm part, part of the problem. So, and there's nothing I can do is exactly what the industry wants you to do. And so don't be there. Don't be their tool. It's paralyzing to have despair and shame and guilt are, are paralyzing. And there is so much you can do. And on that note, yes, there's the personal transformation and, and living a little more gently on the planet. But really the most important thing is not the change that you personally do. It's the, it's the exercise of your power, raising your voice, your political power to pressure the government and these industries to, to change because we can't all change enough to make a difference, but they can change. And it's so easy and it's within our reach and we have what we need to do it. So I can't think of a more inspirational guest that I've had. Oh, thank you. Katie, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.